Nisan Bolivinaka listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific Ngo Okoroi Hawkins. Coming up... The members of parliament who are in uh, in those parties who signed the package, they, they agree it would be OK, but if there is disagreement, that will be a problem. A coalition of parties has formed in Vanuatu that could well become the country's next government. Also... Because the government has a habit of making a lot of commitments, promise announcements, and not following through. It's well accepted that the just-completed election in Papua New Guinea is perhaps the worst in the country's 47 years of independence, but what is being done to fix it? And later on... Tokiaho's got the ball! He's kicked to the end goal! And they have pulled out a try! And I think you know where! Tonga have survived a near upset in their opening game of the Rugby League World Cup, narrowly beating Papua New Guinea Kumuls by 24 points to 18. A coalition of parties has formed in Vanuatu that could well become the country's next government. Although the official election result is yet to be released, a pact has been signed between five of the largest political parties and associated smaller parties and independent MPs claiming 31 of the 52 seats in the Vanuatu parliament. The main parties in the new group are the Union of Moderate Parties, UMP, Reunification Movement for Change, RMC, Leaders' Party of Vanuatu, LPV, Brown More Justice Party, GJP, People's Progressive Party and others. Joining me to break down the political groupings and personalities is our correspondent in Port Vila, Ilya Bule. Thank you to us for sitting down with him, Mifala Wantok. Tell us more about this coalition. If the PAC who signed the PAC yesterday are serious, uh, we should have the next uh, coalition, uh, in, the, in the next new coalition government, uh, the Union of Moderate Party, uh, uh, following the unofficial result, with uh, uh, with uh, is uh, eight winning uh, candidate, and also the uh, reunification movement of change for former Prime Minister Salo Salwai with uh, five uh, five winning uh, winning candidate, and you have also seven winning candidates of the Leaders Party of Vanuatu. And also the three from Ground and Justice Party for former leader of the opposition, Ralph Vergenvanu, and two from uh, uh, People's Progressive Party for former Prime Minister uh, Sato uh, uh, Kilman. Uh, and but you have also with those political parties some of the, um, the, the, the 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 winning candidates who have contesting contested uh, the snap election last week. Uh, they signed the uh, the affiliation with with those political parties. For example, the uh, Union of Moderate Party. Uh, one candidate who, who won the uh, last week election was the candidate of the Vemarana Movement for the Santo Island. The former Minister of Land, Pikun Joshua, who signed the affiliation with Union of Moderate Party. So they have also the other affili- uh, affiliated. Uh, movement or independent candidate who affiliate with them. And that is why they, they got 31. Yes, and um, who who are not in the pact? Uh, the parties who are not in the pact, uh, we can say that uh, there, there are the former party uh, who were in the last government of uh, former Prime Minister Bob Loveman, that, uh, of course, the Vanuatu Party for Loveman, and then you have... Uh, uh, Rural Development Party for former uh, Minister of uh, Public Utilities, Che Ngwele, and also the uh, Yauko Group. Yauko Group won uh, 
following an official result, uh, three members of the parliament, one in uh, Antana and one in Luganville and one in Santo Constituency. Now, now, counting, official counting is, is still underway. When, when we keep talking about unofficial results, maybe just explain for our listeners, unofficial results is the collection of information from various polling stations by various media orgs. Is that right? Yes. Uh, traditionally in Vanuatu, I don't know about uh, the, uh, the other countries, but in Vanuatu, when the police station uh, closed at the end of the day, the, the presiding officer, they have to count the result of the, uh, the, the, the election during the day uh, because each party put its observer in its polling station and its observer uh, has to know what is the unofficial result. So that is why we call it unofficial result. And uh, the, the counting were, were already done uh, when, when the vote is finished at the end of the day. But uh, because the official uh, result can only come from the Electoral Commission, that is why we call it an official result. Now, going back to the, the lobbying and the, the formation of government, 31 out of 52 seats, is that right? 31 out of 52 seats? Yeah, thirty-one or fifty-two, fifty-two yeah, seats. It's quite, quite a, quite a big, big majority. Yes. Well, how likely uh, is how likely is this to hold in your experience from past experiences with lobbying? Is there still room and time for a big shift or changes to coalition makeup? Uh, well, that is uh, that is a comfortable number, but uh, it will depend very much on and the, the sharing of uh, portfolios because nowadays and the packet. The next step is to to agree with uh, which political party will hold the, the prime minister and the sharing of portfolio. If the MB and the members of parliament who are in uh, in those parties who signed the pact yesterday, they agree, it will be okay. But if there is disagreement, that will be a problem. Right, right. So it's very much uh, in terms of managing those relationships within coalitions. Yes, that, that that is why former Prime Minister Sato Gilman said that uh, uh, the new coalition government it, it will depend very much on the, uh, how the new Prime Minister will will uh, will manage uh, will manage the party who are in, the, in his, uh, who will be in the new coalition government. Yeah. Now, just looking at some of these potential candidates, sorry, in this group of parties that have signed this sort of pact uh, to to form government, who are the big big names in this? that was uh, signed last night, was it signed? Yeah, uh, well, you have two uh, former prime ministers that are uh, uh, Salo Salwai and also Sato Gilman, and uh, uh, they are the president of their respective uh, political party, and uh, you have also uh, the uh, deputy prime minister, who is now the current president of Union of Moderate Party, Ismail Kalsakao, and then you have also the former leader of the opposition, uh, uh, Ralph Regenvanu. That is a lot of big personalities <laughs> for one coalition. Yes, it will be very interesting to see how things play out. Thank you, Tomas. Uh, maybe before we go, just uh, what's the what's the mood in on the ground? People that you've been talking to, what's the Kavaba stories about uh, this election? Well, uh, the people are respecting the, the new government. That's all, and they they want a new government that is. Uh, will perform better than uh, the outgoing uh, government. Thank you, Thomas Wantok. Appreciate your time. It's now well accepted that the just-completed election in Papua New Guinea was perhaps the worst in the country's 47 years of independence. 
There was widespread violence and criminality and there's been a lot of talk about the need to make changes to ensure the country does not go through such an experience again. But how committed are the decision makers to implementing the various changes needed? Don Wiseman put that question to University of PNG political scientist and current PhD student at the Australian National University, Michael Kabuni. It's hard to say because the government has a habit of making a lot of commitments, promise announcements and not following through. And we know it's really bad. Everyone wants to see change and the government is making these announcements that they will look into all of these things. But, you know, the past experience, they say things and they don't follow through. So I really don't know how committed the government is. We'll just wait and see if they're serious uh, with what they're saying. The good good news is that they appointed ECP Governor Alan Bell to lead this commitment of, to look into how the elections were conducted and what went wrong and what should be done to improve elections in the future. And he's, he's someone who, who can get things done. Uh, he's proven that in his electorate in his city. So hopefully he can lead a change that he can push for funding, set up team to investigate investigations, research into what went wrong and what to do to make sure it's not repeated in 2027. What sort of changes do you think would be needed to ensure that the country doesn't go down that road again? What needs to happen? So there are at least two categories, if you like. The first one is changes that are specifically targeted at improving the electoral process. And the second one is a broad change for investment. And the broader one would be investing into law and order, because this cannot be fixed on election day. Uh, it has to be a 10, 20 years commitment. The police citizen ratio at the moment is one police to about 1,300 citizens. So that's that's a very low on the, on the police side. There are people who, you know, break laws and don't get punished. And there is this sense of impunity that you can break the law and you know you won't get punished. And that's partly the reason why the violence that used to be restricted, you know, in the islands region during elections. And we've just seen that in Port Mosby with people, you know, with boost knives, chopping each other on a street in Port Mosby. And that's partly because of this sense that you can break the law and you can walk away. So this, you know, commitment to improve or make elections more peaceful, it's going to take take a while because the investment into the police and police infrastructure and manpower has been very low for decades. So things like you know, investment into police and law and order will take a while. But there are things that are election specific and the government has to work on it in the next five years. In fact, in the next, maybe next year onwards. Uh, is to first get the census right. The last census was conducted in 2011, but that was considered not accurate. So the accurate census would go all the way back to 2000, and that's about 20 years ago. So census is very vital because what happens is the commonwealth data is compared with the census data to make sure that, you know, it's not inflated. So census needs to be conducted common role needs to be updated and done properly. What happened in the last election was it was rushed and there was a very vital process in the common role update that the electoral commission didn't follow through because elections just approaching, they ran out of time. And that is after the common role is conducted, you put these names up on notice boards back in the districts and LLGs 
local level government, you know, stations and wards so that people have an opportunity to look at the names and see if their names are missing. The Lego Commission didn't do that. So this opportunity to verify, you know, names and include missing names, this was not conducted. And that's just one of the several processes related to common role that were not followed. So the common role was a mess was really bad in this election, and that's something that needs, needs to be fixed. And then there is the question of funding. When the Electoral Commission asks for money, it never gets the amount it asks for and never gets the money in time. So, you know, if the government is serious, they have to give the Electoral Commission the money, the amount that, you know, the Electoral Commission asks for, and when the Electoral Commission wants it, so that they have the time and the funds to do what they need to do to get things ready before election. And what the government has been doing in the last couple of elections is that they are very much focused on trying to control what happens on election day, to make sure that law and order on election day is better, to make sure that there is peace on election day. So this focus on election day is the reason why they get it wrong, because election is a process. And there are things that need to be done right before the election day, because one process relies on another. And so the government has to start thinking about these things starting now, in fact. You would think there would be a significant vote for the Electoral Commission in this upcoming budget. Yeah, that has to be now. They have to think about the budget of the Electoral Commission starting. Towards the end of this year, they'll be passing the budget for 2023. And the Electoral Commission's component should start, increasing the Electoral Commission's component should start with this budget in November. Another aspect that seems to make it very unwieldy is the very large number of candidates. They are up to 60. Well, that's probably too many, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's too many. It's very difficult to understand why, you know, the number of candidates are increasing every election. It well, is certainly it, something that adds to the confusion, don't you think? It does. It, it adds to the confusion. But, the, you know, the real question is, you know, why are too many people contesting the election? And one of the suggestions is the increasing constituency development funds that have been given to MPs. And it's, a, I mean, you have to understand PNG is a, basically a poor country in terms of money and things like that. Each population is in subsistence funding, and that's fine. But Limited opportunities for employment or making money and state is seen as, you know, this institution that has vast resources and increasing DSIP, District or Services Improvement Program Fund, which is one of these constituency development fund arrangements in Papua New Guinea. Increasing amounts of money that are given to MPs and the MPs are also given broad discretion on how to spend it. So the different tribes and different communities look at these SAPI funds as one of the ways to enrich themselves, so at least get their hands on this money. And it may explain increasing number of candidates. It's not, you know, the complete explanation, but looking at ways, trying to understand why there are so many candidates, but also the level of violence. It's just becoming so intense and so widespread. There is this talk of islandization of coastal politics, which is the practice that was previously restricted to the islands region. It's now become something you expect in the coastal regions. used to be peaceful. So why are elections becoming so, so violent? And why are so many candidates contesting the election? And one of the possible explanations is that people see elections as 
not an opportunity to get someone to represent you on the floor of parliament and make laws, but they see election as getting one of your king or one of your tribal members to get into a position with unlimited resources so that they can direct the resources to their community, their tribe. So that's, you know, a possible explanation why the number of candidates may be increasing. The feminist movement has been influential in bringing change for gender equality in a lot of countries. While some may argue that achieving equality has always been on the Pacific region's agenda before the rise of feminism, more young Pacific people are forming social justice groups and advocating for women's rights. One of these groups is Brown Girl Woke, founded and led by Malesu Torres Tulifau, who spoke with Susana Suisuiki and began by explaining how she started the initiative. So Brown Girl Woke is a nonprofit. Um, it started in America when I was in university um, on social justice issues for young girls that were brown, especially during the time um, I started it in 2015, 2016, before the Trump administration, where a lot of uh, brown people were getting deported and a lot of my family was getting deported and we didn't even know the laws. So that's where woke came from. It was a trending word at the time to know to know your surroundings, to know what's going on in government, in law, in your own life. And that's how I started Brown Girl Woke. I was finishing my PhD and moved to Samoa to do work on ending violence against women and girls because I'm also a survivor of domestic violence and sexual abuse. Um, there's not enough data in America, which is the same thing in New Zealand and Australia for Samoans or for Pacific Islanders. So I thought that I could come back, spend a semester and do research here in Samoa on domestic violence and um, sexual abuse. And when I came over, I seen that there wasn't any platforms for youth to speak on any taboo issues. So I started uh, Brown Girl Woke here in 2018. Thank you for that. I understand um, the Samoa Feminist Forum took place back in September. In your opinion, what does feminism look like in Samoa given the strong cultural and religious obligations? For someone, um, for someone context, because I knew it was, it was actually the first national feminist forum to be here, I was kind of scared to do it. At the same time, I wanted to make sure that people understood that for feminism, especially for the someone context, is something that everyone holds. A, everyone holds their mother, a woman. In high standards, we've lost that during colonization, during Christianity, where women has always been leading their family, taking care of their family. We see that in every role. We've seen it during COVID, that the mothers were the ones that were taking care of their families as people lost jobs. So for me, it was making sure that they understood that what feminists what feminist, what meant in Samoa is not saying that women should take over a male perspective or men, period is that women have lead-led roles and to make sure that we see that and we appreciate it and we give value to it. Thank you. What's been some of the difficulties that you've experienced since starting up Brown Girl Work? Uh, definitely because um, Samoa is still a very patriarch country. Um, being a young woman doing this work and also having young women as advocates, we still get seen as, you know, um, the girls should be, you know, serving and um they should always uh be the ones like well yeah be the ones serving and taking care of everybody instead of having a voice or having any space to speak so um it, it has been difficult for us to be in uh 
probably platforms that are like in the government or in with the ministries. We're still doing really grassroots work. We've only we're only four years old, but still we've been as as a lot of work we've done in the schools and and in the community. It still hasn't given us the space in the government for us to speak up more for the youth, and we're the only youth organization um, that's youth led in Samoa. So from the beginning of Brown Girl Work until um, today, what's been some of the changes that you've seen among the Samoan community that you serve? Uh, especially with um, the work that we do with the... Um, so we do a lot of work with families uh, that are vulnerable. Um, we've been doing making sure that our connections to America, New Zealand, Australia, that people can donate to our organization and we go out and make sure that we can help families throughout the year. And we've learned that through the measles and through COVID. Um, through our feminist movement and uh, making sure youth are, uh, know their human rights, it's been a huge change because I know a lot of schools uh, never had people come in or had conversations on their human rights as kids, that they do hold power and they can't speak up. And um, we've had a lot of schools message us even today to make sure that we are in their um, curriculum for the rest of the year to come in and talk about safety programs. We know a lot. there's a lot of uh, sexual abuse in Samoa and domestic violence. Uh, they're preparing us to go into schools. Um, so that's, that's something new for us that schools actually want us in. Usually when we first started in 2008, um, 18, they would never let us come into the schools because they thought we were promoting you know, suicide, promoting taboo issues. And now they're understanding that we need to have these conversations yeah, absolutely. So last question, how does feminism benefit the Pacific region? It benefits to making sure that uh, women know they're important and their value. And I see that a lot with uh, the work that we do with any violence against women and girls. We still think we have to sacrifice all the time. And not understanding that sacrifice is power, our bodies is power, and that sacrificing means we're leading the, we're, we've been leading this role for a long time. So making men understand the sacrifices of women and that that is feminism, that equality, that staying at home moms that take care of the land and take care of our kids is no different from someone making a six-figure job. You wouldn't be possible without us taking care of our land and our homes. So uh, that's what feminism looks like to me in the context of the Pacific. Tonga have survived a near upset in their opening game of the Rugby League World Cup, narrowly beating Papua New Guinea's Kumuls by 24 points to 18. It was a nail-biting game, with commentators calling it the match of the tournament so far. RNZ Pacific's Finau Funo has more. The Tongans, they scramble an egg. Tokiaho's got the ball. He's kicked to the end goal. And they have pulled out a try. And I think you know where. It was a heartbreaking moment for Kumo fans. The score was 18-all with just two minutes left on the clock before Tongan second row Keenan Goloamodangi chased down a grubber kick to score a tiebreaker. In the first half, Matama Tonga appeared to be in control of the game, leading 18-6 at the break. But in the second half, the Kumus launched a valiant comeback, scoring two unanswered tries. Kaloa Matangi commended the Kumos for their efforts. We knew that it wasn't going to be an easy game. Um, uh, from the from the get go, uh, every every sort of hit up was, um, you know, you sort of felt the contact from the first minute all the way to the 80th. So 
Um, no, it's good. It's a PNG. You know, they're a great team, and um, you know, it shows how much they love their football and how much pride they have for the for the jersey. And um, we sort of tried to replicate that too. And um, you know, we came uh, came away with the win at the end. Tongan coach Christian Wolf also praised the Kumos, who entered the game as underdogs with heavy favourites. Matama Tonga considered by many to be serious contenders for winning the Rugby League World Cup trophy. It marks Tonga's first ever win over Papua New Guinea. PNG, really good. You know, they, we knew they'd turn up, we knew they'd be physical, we knew it would be that type of game, but yeah, we know exactly what to expect from PNG. That's actually the first time Tonga's beaten PNG. And, um, yeah, they're a tough team to play, they play with passion, they did that tonight. I'm really happy with the way that our blokes found a way to win. That's the, the, you know, the sign of a really good side and the sign of a quality side. But we've got to be better and we will be better. PNG head coach Stanley Teppin says he is proud of his team's performance and character and had little to critique his team for. They um, gave, gave it everything. Um, and that's what we, uh, we spoke about all, all week um, in camp. We, um, you know, what the jersey meant. And I think they proved that. And I think the whole country would be happy with the boys' performance and, and their families and, 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 the, and their teammates. Man of the match went to Kumu hooker Edwin Ipape, who created plenty of space for the Kumus. Obviously not the result that we wanted. Um, you know, we came out here, we played our hearts out, and, you know, we know that 8 million-plus people back home are watching, and, you know, you, you see the effort from, from our boys. We played to the last minute, so um, credit to the Tongan boys. They, you know, kept turning out for each other, and, um, yeah, they came up with a try on the, uh, on the end, so... Um, yeah, just, I'm, I'm just so glad that my boys played the best that they can tonight. Tonga's next game is against Wales, whilst the Kumos take on the Cook Islands. For the other Pacific teams, such as Samoa and Fiji, it's been a tough ride so far. Samoa lost to England by 60 points to 6, while Fiji were thrashed by Australia by 42 points to 6. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Thank you, Tomas.